I know some of you are visiting for the first time, some of you are returning, some of you are regulars, but I just want to say uh, welcome, hope you are enjoying yourself this morning, and also just as we kind of introduce Acts chapter 14, you can start turning there, um, I want to encourage you because one of the things that's kind of happened over the last couple of weeks as we've been studying the book of Acts is we've been discovering the importance of ministering to the Lord, and I had someone come up to me uh, this morning and kind of asked for a little bit clearer definition of what that meant. But it basically means serving God. It doesn't mean physically serving Him necessarily, but it means that instead of coming to God to get something, we're coming to God to give something to Him. And one of the ways that we can do that is simply through the study of the Word of God. As we study the Bible and come to a text like we're coming to this morning, and we simply say to God, Lord, whatever you want for me from this text, and He does want something for you from this text, whatever you want for me, the answer is already yes. Whatever your plan is for me, my heart's available and yielded. Teach me, equip me, inspire me, move me closer to your purposes this morning. That's a part of worship. That's a part of ministering to the heart of God. We're giving him something that he wants. We're not looking for something we want, but we're coming to the word this morning with a desire to lay our lives down and to make ourselves available for his purposes, for his pleasure. And so I want to encourage you that, that you can actually minister to the Lord in the time that we have in studying the Bible this morning, that how you respond makes a difference to God. And so uh, we have an opportunity right now in the next uh, number of minutes as we study the Bible, study Acts chapter 14, to give something to God that's precious to him, and that's a responsive, yielded, obedient heart to what we learned from this text this morning. So I'm excited about it. I mean, I've already studied this all week and taught it once already, and, uh, but I'm still looking forward to it because I know that God has some things in the text for me as well. Uh, just before we read it, I'll remind you that um, in studying the book of Acts, we're looking at a major transition that took place in chapter 13, a transition that went primarily from the, the apostle Peter to Paul, a transition that went from the Jews to the Gentiles, from Jerusalem to Antioch, and from Jerusalem and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we have a very significant transition that's taken place. And Paul and Barnabas, as the church was ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit called out Paul and Barnabas and sent them on the first missionary journey that we have recorded in Scripture. And so we've already seen one chapter of that as they went to Pisidian Antioch and they had mixed results. They had a lot of people that believed and then they had some persecution. They were driven out of of, uh, of Antioch uh, because of their uh, testimony for Christ. And then we're going to pick up the text this morning in chapter 14, and uh, I'd like to begin by reading that text, and then we'll consider its application to our life. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to uh, Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet 
who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up to your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provided you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples." Father, we want to come to you this morning with your word and just say thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is for us to minister to you by allowing you to speak to us and to have a heart that's responsive and eager, God, to hear and to act upon what we learn. And so, Father, thank you in advance for your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you take the preparation I've made and that you would use it to advance the purposes and cause of Christ in our lives. And so I yield my heart and my mind and my mouth to you and ask that you would fill me, that I might be a blessing to these men and women, these young people that you love so deeply. So have your way in our time, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. This particular text this morning really offers us uh, a number of blessings, a number of lessons, everything uh, related to evangelism and discipleship. It relates to stepping up in our own walk with God. It relates to how to overcome the sometimes a paralysis that we have in our own lives. There's an awful lot here. And Paul begins uh, uh, this journey for us in verse 1 with Paul and Barnabas going to the city of Iconium. It was about 90 miles uh, from Antioch. It was uh, a time that they actually went right into the Jewish synagogue, which was the practice of Paul and Barnabas. Every time they went to a new city to share the gospel, they went immediately into 
the Jewish synagogue. And the, and the reasons are fairly obvious. Number one, that was a very natural contact that they had. It was an area that they were familiar with. It was a place in the, uh, in the synagogue where people were already familiar with the scriptures and had a certain hunger for the things of God. And one of the things that we can learn right out of the gate from verse 1 is that the, the primary way that God uses us to share our faith with other people is in just the natural contacts that we have in life. Through our family, we have it through our neighborhoods, through our workplace, through the natural network of relationships that already exist. And so, yeah, sometimes God will send us to faraway places where we don't know anyone. And sometimes some of you think to yourself, I'd rather go there where no one knows what I'm really like and, and I can preach the gospel with a clean conscience. And, uh, but but the, the hard work, really the toughest kind of evangelism is to preach it next door. It's to preach it across the street. It's to preach it at the place that you work because those people really do know what you're like. And so God's natural way of us communicating the faith is just through the natural networks of relationships that we have, the places of influence that God has given us. And so those are the places that we need to really be praying that God is going to use us. And that's the natural network of relationships that Paul and Barnabas begin with. But the text tells us that they spoke so effectively and they saw a great number of Jews and Gentiles believe. And so these guys were prepared to share the gospel. They knew the message. They knew what they wanted to communicate. Uh, and the Holy Spirit filled them with the right words at the right time with power in that ministry so that their words didn't fall short of the mark. And the result was is that there was a large group of people that turned their lives over to Jesus Christ in faith. But as we've discovered in our study so far in the book of Acts, not everyone is going to respond to the gospel. And we're told in verse 2 that there were Jews there who refused to believe. Actually, the word literally in English would be unpersuadable. These people, it's not that they didn't hear the message or it didn't make sense to them because the message was very persuasive that Paul and Barnabas preached, but they were unpersuadable. It didn't matter what Paul and Barnabas said, they were not going to respond to the message of Jesus Christ. And instead, they stirred up the Gentiles against the message. Now, here's something I find uh, rather shocking and a bit disturbing is here you've got Jews who were appointed by God to be a light to the Gentiles. And, of course, they, they'd lost their way so significantly that when the actual Messiah comes and dies on the cross, is resurrected, not only don't they believe him, but when the disciples of Christ go out, they still don't believe. And then rather than turning the Gentiles toward the Messiah, they actually stir up the Gentiles' heart against the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a, that's a fearsome thing to be in the place of people who stir people up against Christ. You know, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, that there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that he detests. And one of those is someone that stirs up division in the body of Christ. Now, that's one of the things that I really want to encourage you with as a church is that God has really protected our fellowship. And we just don't have a lot of that going on in the church, and it's a total blessing. And I want to thank you for that because it makes this fellowship such a pleasure to be a part of is that that kind of, of, of negative talk and that kind of stirring people up just doesn't happen very much in this church. It doesn't get traction. It's not that it just doesn't get traction with me, but even the people, you guys in the church, you, you don't let that happen. And I just want to say thank you for preserving what God is doing here. But these Jews, when they heard that Paul was preaching, were stirring up the Gentiles to reject the message. 
And, and I find it interesting that it's, it's happening within the synagogue. It's not, it's not unbelieving Gentiles that are stirring up the people in the church, these seekers, but it's actually the people who are supposedly followers of God who are stirring up other people to reject the message. And so it's really so important that, you know, as we look at these kind of things that we, that we realize the seriousness of, of, um, of our communication. Now, the Bible does say we're to stir each other up, but it's not to reject the message of Christ, but it's to stir each other up to love and good deeds. It's to stir each, up, each other up to faith. It's to stir each other up to a passion for the things of the kingdom. So that's not only permitted, but it's encouraged. And so I want to encourage you that you are called and uh, exhorted throughout Scripture to stir each other up. And even today, you have that chance to do that. There are going to be people all around you after the service that many of you probably could use some stirring up and some encouragement in your marriage or in your workplace or in your finances or in your raising of your children. You need to be stirred up spiritually. And so God is going to give us all a chance after this service, just in the course of our natural network of friendships, to stir each other up in our walk with the Lord. But these Jews were actually stirring them up to reject Christ, and they poisoned their minds against their brothers. Well, the Bible says in verse 3 that Paul and Barnabas spent a considerable time there and spoke boldly for the Lord. They were fearless, and they were confident in their speech. Now, the question I'm thinking is, that why, why did they have to speak boldly? Well, I, I think there's a number of reasons, but I think because there's always going to be opposition to the gospel. And because of that, it does take a certain amount of boldness to step up and speak and open our mouth. And so I think they needed to be bold because of that. I think they needed to be bold also because people of darkness will always reject the gospel of the truth of light, and they don't want to come to the light. And so that's going to take a certain boldness for us to speak when we know that we're speaking to a mixed crowd, maybe at work or even in a, in a neighbor's home. And then thirdly, because Satan is always the enemy of truth. These things require boldness. And the, the thing I like about Paul is that, you know, sometimes we think of Paul, and I think of Paul as just this tremendously courageous man who just never had a doubt and never had a worry and never had a fear and, and you know, come hell or high water, or the guy was going to preach the gospel. But that really wasn't the case because we find in the book of Colossians and also in the book of Ephesians that he's asking these churches, please pray for me. Pray for me that God would open the door and pray for me when the door is open that I'll have the courage to preach the gospel. Pray for me that I'll speak it and preach it and proclaim it fearlessly. So, so here's the bottom line on this little part of this text is that the Apostle Paul was afraid at times. The Apostle Paul lacked courage at times. The Apostle Paul was timid at times. But he prayed and he asked other people to pray for him. And so, you know, I imagine, especially in light of what Paul went through whenever he preached the gospel, that there were times that he lacked the courage and the boldness. And he prayed and he asked God for strength to speak. And that really encourages my heart because I think, you know, there are times that I get a little bit nervous. Every time that I go out and do evangelism or share, uh, sometimes when I, I, uh, I'm real intentional, if it's just in the course of conversation, it's real easy for me. But if I, like, you know, schedule it, okay, on a certain day I'm going to go out and share door-to-door -door or go down to the beach or whatever, I get a little nervous, even after all these years. And I have to pray, Lord, give me boldness and courage to share this message. And so I'm encouraged that the apostle needed prayer and I hope you're encouraged that you're not alone if you uh, sometimes feel a little concerned and a little anxious about sharing your faith. But the answer is not to share it, but the answer is to actually pray for boldness to communicate that message 
uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says that they spoke the, the word boldly, and the Lord confirmed the message by signs and wonders. Uh, we're talking about miracles, healings. It's an interesting thing because sometimes I'm asked uh, by people, why don't we see more signs and, and miracles uh, today, especially in the United States? And uh, there, are, there are certainly people that tell you they happen all the time, and, and they are happening um, all the time, but they don't happen as frequently or as often as they do in, for instance, third world countries where the gospel has never been preached. And the reason is quite simple. These signs and miracles are to attest or to authenticate certain things about God in a place where the gospel has never been heard. I think uh, there are probably at least three things. One is to authenticate the deity of Jesus Christ. We're told that in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. To authenticate the authority of the apostles, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 22. And then to authenticate the veracity of the gospel. So God attested to the message by allowing these miraculous things to take place to authenticate to the people who are hearing this message, many of them for the first time, that this message was indeed from God. And so once an area has received the message of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that miracles don't happen anymore, but the primary purpose for miracles has been achieved, which is to bring people to an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is one of the things that I think is uh, part of the danger when, uh, when people try to replicate signs and wonders as a, as a, as a ministry in and of itself. And they go around and it's a, it's a healing uh, tent meeting or revival service where, you know, come and get this and come and get that and, you know, bless your finances and all these things are going to be transformed in your life. And people actually in the body of Christ follow these tent meetings around and these particular speakers around. The, the problem with that is that these miracles were designed by God primarily to attest and to authenticate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then once that authenticating ministry has been accomplished, it just seems to be the case, it's not always the case, but oftentimes the number of miraculous signs and wonders begin to decrease. And so we find that in this early stage, uh, the Lord confirms the message by all these signs and wonders. Verse 4 tells us that the people, despite these signs and wonders, were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And um, I'm reminded of the ministry of Jesus because, of course, we know from Scripture in the book of John that that people were constantly divided about Christ. You know, you'd think Jesus would be like the most unifying person on the entire planet. I mean, God himself in the flesh comes to the planet and you'd think that the whole world would unite, but it didn't. It actually divided. And every time Jesus spoke, the crowd was divided. Every time he performed a miracle, the crowd was divided. Every time he taught one of his parables, the crowd was divided. And Jesus said something very interesting in the book of Luke uh, chapter 12. He said, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? He said, no, I tell you, but division. Very interesting. I, I, uh, I'm kind of um, thinking about the push for unity, especially among world religions. And, uh, and that's a push that I think is going to increase. There, there's going to be greater and greater pressure on the church to, to uh, unify with uh, churches and religious systems that are completely contradictory to the scriptures. And, uh, and Jesus said, I haven't come to bring that kind of unity. I actually have come to bring a message that will bring division between mother and father and between brother and sister and between relatives, that it's going to divide families and, and uh, groupings of people. They will be divided over this message. Now, the one thing that does 
happen when the gospel is preached is it does bring peace, but to individual hearts. But it doesn't guarantee that it brings peace to people groups or to families. To the contrary, Jesus said it will actually bring division, which again is one of the things that, that uh, I believe Satan sometimes puts in our hearts to discourage us is that, you know, we preach the gospel and, and, our, and we have family members that don't respond and we're thinking, did I do it wrong? Did I, did I not say it properly? Didn't I use the right scriptures? I must not be very good at this. But the reality is, is that when the gospel goes out, we're already promised by Jesus that it's going to be a divisive message. And that means that whenever we teach or whenever we proclaim or whenever we share our faith, that we need to expect a mixed response. Now, I like to, I like to see people come to Christ. And when I share the gospel, I love to see people respond to it, you know. And I remember as a young Christian, uh, I would go out and share the gospel. I went to San Diego uh, State to, to go share the gospel there on the campus uh, every weekend. I'd get out there, and, it, and at first I was just like, yeah, I, got, I got a message for you. You've got to listen to this good news. I'm a brand new Christian, right? I'm just like bubbling over. I'm just like, uh, you know, excited. And I'm telling people about the Lord. And, uh, and the first couple of times that people were just blew me off. And I thought, I must be doing something wrong. I must not have the message right. I went back to some guys that were helping me grow in my walk with God and I said, what did I do wrong? And they told me you didn't do anything wrong, at least based on what you've told us. But the message brings division. Not everyone's going to respond in the same way. And these guys responded in such a negative way in this text that they, they planned and plotted to mistreat and actually stone Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas did what Jesus said to do in Matthew 10 is that they fled and they went on to the next city. They went to Lystra and to Derbe, and they continued to preach the good news there. Well, interesting, Lystra is about 18 miles away uh, southwest of Iconium, so it was quite a journey for Paul and Barnabas, and um, unlike their first experience that they just got run out of the town of, there was no synagogue in Lystra. It was a Gentile area. So their, their normal course of networking wasn't there. They didn't immediately go into the synagogue, listen to the prayer, listen to the Old Testament reading, listen to the prophet reading, and then get invited to speak. They actually had to go just preach on the streets. And so that's what they did. And I, I think to myself, uh, this is what we've been talking about in the fellowship for a number of months about divine appointments and listening to the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit is that when, when you don't have a plan, you've got to depend on God. And, and that's where Paul and Barnabas were. And, and quite frankly, as I've shared with you over the last few months, I don't think there's anything more exciting than being able to simply be in relationship with God, minister to the Lord, and allow the Holy Spirit to be the one to fill you, to lead you, and to help you keep in step with him so that every day is kind of like Christmas because you just don't know what's going to happen, but you know it's going to be good because God's at the center of it. And this is part of the abundant life that God has promised us. One of, the, one of the things that, um, that I, I think I, I kind of had to learn after the first few years of being a Christian is I was so planned and organized in my life before I became a Christian that I took that same, that same planning strategy into my Christian walk and it just didn't work quite the same way because it left no room for God. And, and over the years, even though I'm still a planner and an and organizer, I, I, I'm realizing I've got to let God lead if I'm going to experience the abundant life. Yes, planning is good. Those things are ordained by God. But I need to leave room for God to work. And so God took Paul and Barnabas to a place where their normal plan wasn't going to work. 
And they had to simply be responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the opportunities that the Holy Spirit gave them. So as they're there in Lystra, Paul is preaching. He's probably been preaching for a number of days already. And there's a crippled man in the crowd. The Bible tells us this man has never walked. He's never stood to his feet. He's never had an eye-to-eye conversation with another human being. He's always looking up. He sees hairy legs and he sees waist. And that's all, you know, the guy is just like this. He's got a, like a permanent position in his neck of just like this. He's dependent. He's a beggar. He has no job, no family, no future, no hope. He's just existing. But this man, this crippled man, who had very little value from a human standpoint, was completely taken by the preaching of Paul, completely taken by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says that he listened to Paul as he was speaking. And actually in the Greek text, it's in the imperfect tense, which means that he kept on listening. I mean, he wasn't just like listening for a minute or two, but, but this man was just like glued to Paul and, and watching. And he was there for the messages and he, just, he was right where Paul was preaching. And he was just absorbing and taking it all in. And in verse 9, it tells us that, that Paul looked directly at this man and he saw that this man had faith to be healed. Well, how did Paul know? Well, it could have just been that just from a human perspective, Paul is watching this man in the crowd and just sees this man as just like, like beaming and just kind of anticipating. He might have just seen in his eyes or he might have discerned it spiritually because Paul picked this man out of the group and he saw that this man had the faith to be healed. I guess the question I have is, how did this Gentile man that probably had no religious background to speak of come to have faith? Well, the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing the word of God. That's where faith comes from. And this man had been exposed to the preaching of the apostle Paul and Barnabas probably for a number of days. And the teaching of the Bible the teaching of the scriptures, the teaching about Jesus Christ, about his death and resurrection, the teaching about the healings that Jesus did, the purpose of Jesus Christ in coming and delivering the captives and, and setting the captives free, uh, helping the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and the dead to be raised, that something in this man's heart responded. And he said, is it possible that I could be healed? And Paul saw in this man's face and countenance that there was faith. That faith came from the word of God. I, I want to take just a minute here because I know that uh, all of us here could use more faith. Some of you may be struggling uh, in your marriages today and, and you're, you're just thinking, I don't know if I can hang on any longer. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if I can put up with anymore. It might be with your kids that you just, you're so devastated by, by some decisions your children are making and some of them are adult children. They have families of their own, but you're just devastated, and you, but you just, you're just not sure that it's possible for God to work in that situation. You might have a financial situation happening right now where you're just thinking, I don't know how it's happened. We have a 2% unemployment rate here, but I don't have enough money to pay my bills, and you're behind. I, I, it's not really so important what the problem is. What you need is more faith, and how do you get it? Well, the Bible tells us that we get Faith by hearing the word of God, by exposing ourselves to this book. How does this book generate faith? Well, it generates faith because we see the workings of God. 
We see God historically and how he deals with people that put their confidence in him. We see the miraculous power of God to deliver people, to strengthen people, to heal marriages, to transform our children, to work in our finances, to change our lives, to transform us from the inside out. These things come from an understanding of the word of God. And when we read this book, and when we study this book and expose ourselves to its teaching, suddenly we're like this little crippled man, you know, saying, could you do that with me? Is it possible that I could have a great marriage? Is it possible that you could draw my kids into the kingdom of God? Is it possible that you could change my circumstances? I've had a bad habit for my whole life or a bad attitude or I've had anger or whatever. Could you change that in me? I haven't been able to do it. And faith leaps up. Why? Because we see the evidence of God dealing with people in this way and God changing lives. This is one of the reasons why I'm so consistently encouraging you to be people of the Bible, to be people of the Word. If you don't study this book, if you don't read this book very often, you won't have much faith. But if you want to increase your faith, then read the Bible. If you really want to increase your faith, read more of the Bible. Spend more time in the Word of God. But it's virtually guaranteed as you expose yourself to the teaching of the Scriptures that your faith will increase and suddenly you'll have your part in the equation of God's work to be able to see those transformations take place. So Paul sees this man in, in, um, in verse 10 and sees the faith, faith and he basically, I'm almost envisioning in my mind that he just stops his message. And he says, you there in the front, stand up. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a gutsy thing to say, you know? I mean, I can just hear the people, you know, everybody just immediately stops. I mean, if anyone was distracted or bored in that message, it, it, that stopped right then because something was about to happen. Either Paul was going to be completely humiliated or this guy was going to stand up and walk. Well, sure enough, the guy gets up and walks. But I, I, I think sometimes as I read the scripture, I like to, to like go slow motion, you know, like frame by frame by frame and think about what's going on in the hearts of all these people. Because this man, crippled from birth, has, has just been commanded by this visiting speaker who's been preaching this gospel message about a God that he doesn't really know and about Jesus Christ who he's not familiar with, who can change lives. And, and suddenly the guy points to him and says, get up. I'm thinking to myself, of all the reasons that this guy could use to not get up, and there are a lot of good reasons not to get up. I think one of the reasons is financial security. Now, this guy didn't have a lot, but he had a job, and it was a, as a beggar. And as a beggar, you had a pretty good income. It wasn't bad. It was a bit meager, but it was consistent. There were people that would consistently give, and you could put a guilt thing on them. I mean, they got the whole pattern down, you know. I mean, uh, they know how to extract money from, from nice people. And so this guy had that thing down, and he had a job. If he got healed, he'd have to go get work. He'd never worked a day in his life. Can you imagine how frightening that is to have never worked your whole life to get healed and then have to go into the workforce, never even knowing what it's like to put in eight hours of work? That's something this man had to face. Also, his, his current existence as a cripple was risk-free living. You can't fail when you're attempting nothing. And so this guy, there's a certain part, man, if I get up, I could fail. Well, that's true. I think another reason that this guy could have used as an excuse to not get up is that being a cripple didn't require much initiative. 
You know, you just get carried around by everybody else. Everyone does most of the stuff for you. And so it didn't really require, uh, require any initiative or responsibility. People didn't have very high expectations of a cripple that couldn't walk. I think the last one that I was thinking about was that it required no effort. You know, life requires a lot of effort. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, but just kind of maintaining life, I mean, it's just like, I'm, it's amazing how much energy goes to simply just taking care of life, you know, paying the bills and taking care of the lawn and taking care of the kids and, you know, keeping everything running. Just that is an enormous effort. And this man didn't have to worry about that because, of course, he was a cripple. And, and I think to myself as I was praying about this passage, I thought, Boy, you know, I really believe that all of us, to some degree, even though Christ is in us, those who have received Christ, and the power of God is upon us and in us by his spirit, that there's still dimensions of us that are a bit crippled. We, we might have all of the, the extremities in place, all of the body parts are there, but they're not all working properly. And, and sometimes we might have found ourselves saying to God, I, I'm well enough now. I, I'm as whole as I want to be. I don't want to get any holer than I am because being holer means more responsibility. It means maturing. It means, it means uh, being a person that is contributing to the work of God. It means that I'm a participant in the community of faith. And if I'm, you know, handicapped spiritually, I can just kind of drag myself into church every Sunday, you know, and I can sit down in the chair and nobody expects much of me because I'm crippled. Are you following me? And I believe that the Lord is looking to us today and he's saying through this passage, stand up. And I know you might have a thousand things going through your head why you're not capable of doing that. Probably the same things this man had the opportunity to think about. Freeze frame. You know, we're going frame by frame. This whole thing is going on in the mind of this, of this man. It's going on in the mind of the crowd. It's going on in the mind of Paul. It's just like slow motion, you know. And all these things are happening. And maybe that's happening to you. You know, God's purpose for you is to be whole. I think the only reason we're not whole is that we don't want to be wholer than we are. Or we're still in process. But many of you guys, many of us have been Christians for many years and we're still not whole in certain areas. Now, God's working. He's sanctifying us. But sometimes we're not whole because we don't want to be whole. We, we just don't want to get there because we don't want to change. We don't want to be transformed. We're not willing to be whole. We're, we're leaning on our crippled condition spiritually to give an excuse for not advancing in the cause of Christ. And I really believe the Lord would say to you, stand up. Stand up. Well, this man, we find that he immediately gets up. I mean, this guy just, he's jumping out of his chair and he's walking. And uh, the crowd just goes ballistic. You know, they're astonished. They immediately identified Paul and Barnabas as gods. Not quite the response these guys wanted. Now, it's interesting because in Greek mythology, in Lystra, uh, these two particular gods, Zeus and Hermes, had actually come to Lystra many centuries earlier. And they'd come and the people in Lystra had not recognized them as gods. Only one couple recognized them, an older couple, and they blessed this couple by turning them into trees in front of their particular god of Zeus at the temple. That was their blessing. Wow. So... This, this, uh, this mythology had carried on through the centuries into Lystra and the people of Lystra weren't about to make that mistake twice. So when they saw this miraculous event take place, they immediately said, we're not going to blow it twice. We're not going to do what our ancestors did. We need to worship these guys and recognize them for who they are. And they believed that they were, once again, Zeus and Hermes coming to test them again. 
And uh, so they called Barnabas Zeus and, and uh, Paul Hermes because he was a spokesman of the group. Um, by the way, this isn't the first time this has happened where people have been mistaken as gods. That happened to Peter in, uh, uh, when, he was, uh, heal when he healed the beggar in Solomon's colonnade in chapter 3 of Acts. It's also what the people said about Herod in chapter 12 of Acts. He says, this isn't the voice of a man, this is the voice of a god, you remember? And Herod accepted that praise and was eaten by worms, a very gruesome way to go. And so for a variety of reasons, um, uh, Paul and Barnabas didn't want to receive this worship. And they, the Bible tells us in verse 14 that they tore their clothes, which was a sign not only of their anguish over this mistaken identity, but also it was a sign of their anxiety over the fact that this group was actually blaspheming God because they were attributing to man what was accomplished by God. And uh, they denied being gods and they pointed to God's testimony. And we have those verses in verses four, uh, 14 through 18. And they actually used natural revelation to preach the gospel. They didn't go to the Old Testament. They didn't go to the prophets because these people had no familiarity with the Bible, with the Old Testament. So they went to natural revelation and they basically said, God has left a testimony about himself and it's in natural creation. It's in the watering of plants and the, and the providing of crops and giving you a good life. These are things that God has done to all mankind in order to bring them to a knowledge that God exists and that he loves them. And so they preach this message to the people, pointing to the testimony of God. And as this is going on, if, if there isn't enough chaos in this evangelistic venture, verse 19 tells us that some of the Jews, a hundred miles away, came from, uh, from uh, Iconium to undermine the work of this ministry. And so from Antioch and Iconium, these, these Jews followed Paul to disrupt this ministry and they come to disrupt and to win this crowd over of Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. And so they were successful and they actually stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city. Wow, talking about a reversal of fortune here. I mean, one minute you're a god, the next minute you're the devil himself. Uh, and, you know, Jesus speaks to this issue actually in the book of John chapter 2. He says that he would not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in the heart of men. And that's the way people can be. Um, I've had times even in, in my own life as a pastor where I've had people just think that I was the best thing since sliced bread. You know, oh, your messages, oh, your leadership, oh, this. And then something happens and suddenly I'm, you know, Satan's, you know, twin brother. And I'm like, what happened? You know, I don't know. Can you explain to me what, what happened? And if you've never experienced a reversal like that, uh, you haven't lived long enough. It'll happen sooner or later with somebody that thought you were just absolutely wonderful. Uh, you're no longer wonderful. Now, Paul and Barnabas find themselves in this situation where one minute they're about to be worshipped as gods and now that, that these people from Lystra discover that they aren't gods, they're going to get stoned. They're going to stone them uh, just because these Jews come in and disrupt the crowd. And so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about uh, Captain James Cook. Of course, we're all familiar with him in the islands at Kealakekua Bay where he died. Now, when he first arrived in the islands, the Hawaiian people thought he was the god Lono, and boy, there wasn't enough they could do for him. And uh, Captain Cook, to a certain uh, degree, even though he was a Christian and a godly man, I'm sure his men took advantage of that status, and the result was is that, you know, they, got, they, they, they really received a lot of benefit from the Hawaiian people. But once the Hawaiian people discovered uh, that he was not a god, and the way they discovered it is that uh, Captain Cook got hit on the head and he groaned, and he was in pain, and they realized, hey, gods don't have pain. 
And they realized that Captain Cook wasn't a god and then this fight ensued and there was a gunshot and you know the story is that they killed him right on the spot. Uh, and, and that was a, definitely a, a reversal for, for Captain Cook. Um, and so here, here's the moral of the story. Uh, the person who worships you today may be roasting you tomorrow. So, so don't be too drawn in by people's uh, praise for who you are. Recognize, as Jesus said, that he didn't entrust himself because he knows what's in the heart of people. So receive people's encouragement, but just put it in perspective that uh, sometimes things turn around. So the Jews from Antioch, they came and they won the crowds over. They stoned Paul. And uh, actually, everyone thought he was dead. Some commentators actually think that Paul died here. But, uh, but remember, Dr. Luke is writing this text, and it said that they thought he was dead. Some suggested he was dead, but he wasn't dead. Uh, which is a real miracle in and of itself that he wasn't killed in the process. But the Bible tells us that the disciples in verse 20 gathered around the Apostle Paul and he got up and he went back to town. I mean, you know, this guy's like my hero. You know, if it had been me, I would have been saying, call the medics, I need a stretcher. I mean, you know, I'm not, I can't walk. I, I'm, you know, you just have to imagine that these men around Paul and Barnabas believed that they'd killed him. And... They know how to stone people. This isn't a new tradition in the Middle East. They're very good at it. And, uh, and they knew when a man was dead and they thought he was dead. Now, the stoning would have taken place not just in his, his lower body, but it would have primarily taken place in his head because that's how you kill a person in stoning. So you can only imagine what Paul looked like having been hit by big rocks over and over and over and over. And this man, Paul, is surrounded by all these disciples and they're probably thinking, it's over. You know, we've lost him. And then suddenly Paul goes, oh, oh. and he gets up and he walks back into town. I mean, this, this is just amazing. This is the power of God. And not only that, he didn't just get up, but the Bible tells us that he went to Derby the next day, which is a 60-mile journey. Can you believe this? The, the intensity of Paul's heart and his, his love for people compelled him to such a degree to share the gospel that even his personal suffering wouldn't impede the gospel being presented through his life. I'm just totally blown away by this text. When I was in India um, with Gospel for Asia teaching at their Bible colleges this no last November, in between the teachings, uh, I asked the students, would you please share your testimonies with me? And there are, you know, hundreds of students. And, but if you feel led, you know, I'm going to sit here during the break and I just want to hear you. And they would just line up and they would tell me their story. And, and you know, the common thread in all these students' stories was that they were in their village, in their Hindu village, some in Muslim villages, mostly Hindu, in their Hindu village and some Gospel for Asia student from a Bible college would come in and preach the gospel. And immediately, there would be a, a gathering of a crowd. Once the crowd understood what was happening and that they were preaching against the Hindu gods, they would be beaten with cricket bats and with bicycle chains and anything these, these uh, villagers could get their hand on. And they would, they would boot them out of the village and said, don't ever come back. And, you know, these people are bleeding and broken bones and everything. These students that were beaten would go back to Bible college on Monday after the weekend of ministry and they'd go to class and they'd sit there all bandaged up doing their work and, and, uh, and uh, taking their class. And then the next week they would go back to the very same village, to the very same place and they would preach the gospel again and again they'd be beaten and, and, and run out of town. They'd come back to Bible college, take their courses all week, go back again. 
the young people in that village watched these Bible students come back week after week and take their beating. And it got to the point that the people were so ashamed of the, the wounding and the, the uh, damage they were inflicting on these students that loved them so much and would never come back with a railing comment, never called the police or anything, that out of shame they would stop beating them and began to listen to their message. And one by one, these, these, these villagers would come to Christ. And, and the story was over and over and over being told to me by different people from different areas in India. And, and once that happened, they were so blown away by the love and by the passion and by the message of these Bible students that these young people would say, I want to be a Christian. They came to Christ and then after some time they'd want to go to Bible college and then they themselves go weekend after weekend after weekend and they do the same thing, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did in Derby. They once again uh, preached the gospel. The Bible tells us that they won a large number of disciples and, uh, and after they had done that, they decided, Paul and Barnabas, that they wanted to go back to all the places that they'd already visited on this first missions journey and they wanted to go back and they wanted to do four things and we're told those four things in the text beginning in verse 21. It says that they strengthened the disciples. Um, the Greek word is a compound word uh, and it actually means to prop up. So in essence, what Paul and Barnabas wanted to do with these young believers in all these different cities that they preached the gospel is they wanted to come and prop up these new believers. Uh, some months ago, my son, one of my sons uh, was hiking up in the mountains near our, near our house and they found these very fragile uh, spindly orchid plants and they brought them home and, and they created a little garden area in our backyard and they planted them and the first thing that they did, nobody told them to do, they just knew that these plants needed it is they put a stake in the ground next to it and they tied the plant to these stakes in essence, propping up the plants. And the reason is, is that there was no significant root ball in these plants yet. They hadn't been established. And a, a slight wind or a branch blowing across or leaves falling on them was enough to knock these little things over without something propping them up. And I was thinking about what Paul and Barnabas did is that they went and they strengthened the church. They went around from city to city propping up. What, how were they doing it? They were basically saying, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. He, he made himself, in essence, a stake alongside these people and said, tie up to me. Tie up to me for a, for a short season here while we're in town. Tie up to me and, and let's get you strong. Let's help you grow in your walk with God. And then they went on to the next town and did the same thing. Tie up to me. One of the things that, um, that clearly Paul and Barnabas were after were not simply conversions. They were after disciples. They wanted to help people become followers of Jesus Christ. And actually the message of the gospel for us is that God has given us that message. We've got to, not, we've got to move away from the crippled stage. We, we've got to give up the crippled life. We have to say enough of that. I, I've, lean, I've been leaning on that long enough. I need to grow up. I need to stand up. And I need to be the kind of person that other people who are newer in faith can tie up to. And that they can be... Uh, strengthened, that they can be um, given a chance to develop some roots alongside of a more mature believer. And, and I have a, a, a firm conviction about this, and I'm going to share it with you, is that I believe every man here that knows Jesus Christ should either be tied up to someone because you're so new in Christ and growing in your faith, or someone should be tied up to you. You should be a firm place that someone can come alongside and, and know how to be a strong Christian so that their, their roots and their Christian life can be established 
so that eventually, hopefully not too long from now, but eventually they can then be someone that others can tie up to. Every woman, I believe, should either be tied up to a woman. This isn't sounding very good. I, 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 I'm, they need to be someone that another woman can come alongside of and they can actually be a standard of someone that can help another woman grow. And if you've never been discipled, you need to be discipled. You need someone that can help you make progress in your walk with God. And if you've been discipled, then you need to take that next step. Move away from being crippled and, and, and just constantly absorbing. Move away from that and let someone else tie up to you who is a newer Christian. Give your life to them. Teach them what you know. Share with them what it means to walk with God, how to study the Bible, how to pray, how to share your faith, how to live for the kingdom of God. These are things that God did through the disciples. They strengthened the church wherever they went. It also tells us that they encouraged them to remain true to the faith, building them up in their faith. They appointed elders for them in each church. In other words, Paul and Barnabas weren't satisfied with just simply personally strengthening and encouraging. They knew that these people needed people that would be left behind. And so they appointed people to take that role of strengthening and encouraging the church. And I believe that God is calling more and more people in this fellowship to step up to leadership, to be the kind of people that don't simply attend church and simply help with some area of ministry, but people that recognize that this island needs men and women that can stand and can be a strengthening factor in their life that they might grow and that they might mature in their walk with God. When they finally committed them to the Lord with prayer and fasting, now, it tells us in, in verse 26 through 27, and we'll go through this quickly, is that Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch. The mission trip was over. And they went back and they reported to the church all that God had done through them and how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You know, I, I, I want to complete this message by just sharing a few thoughts with you. This, this message is kind of a smattering of, of experiences over one chapter. It's three different cities, three different scenarios, three different people groups that they preach to, three different responses, but there's some things that are consistent. One is that Paul and Barnabas needed to be willing. They needed to be willing to be sent. And that's one thing I just ask you, are you willing? There are people on Kauai and wherever you live that need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And all God is looking for is people that just say, I'm willing. I don't know how capable I am. I don't know how gifted I am. I don't know how effective I'll be, but I'm, I'm certainly willing. And the, the second thing I notice about Paul and Barnabas is that they stood up. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a standing up that took place in their own life. Every time Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, they actually had to stand up and, and, and present it. And that's a fearsome thing to do. But they did it. And they were willing to do it. And I want to tie that into also this whole issue of this cripple. I want to encourage you. I believe that the Holy Spirit is calling us today, every single person, to step out of our crippled condition. I'm not saying we're all completely crippled. I'm just saying that there are parts of our lives that we've, we've allowed to go on too long, that we've allowed to kind of atrophy in our life, and we've just refused for whatever reason. And the Holy Spirit says, I want you completely whole. I want you to leave the crippled life behind. I think the other thing is that we need to be willing to communicate this gospel and expect mixed results. It is going to bring division, and we need to be prepared that as we preach the gospel, we're going to have a mixed response. And then the last thing I'd like to encourage you is to decide to get involved. Decide to be men and women that don't just come to church and then leave. But decide to be men and women that strengthen other people. 
Decide to be men and women that when you come to fellowship or when you're in the community that you're encouraging people around you. Don't just absorb. You're not like that anyway. I'm kind of preaching to the choir because you guys are so giving and so encouraging and you're such a blessing to so many people on this island. And all I want to say is keep doing it and increase that kind of a lifestyle and activity. And the final thing I'd like to leave you with is a reminder that the reason we're still here is because Jesus has called us to make disciples of all nations. And to disciple people, we need to be in relationship. You need to let people tie up to you. And you need to give yourself in a discipling relationship to others to help them know the ropes. It's just simply friendship. That's all it is. You're helping another person weather the early months of being a Christian and help them learn the ropes so that in time they can stand strong and develop fruit and so that others in the future can also tie on to them and on the process goes. That's the calling that we have. This is a great text. And I pray that somehow along the way as we've journeyed through it that the Holy Spirit will use something, some part of this message to help you move forward in your walk with God. And remember that whatever you do in response to this Bible, to the word that we've studied this morning, that's ministry to the Lord. And it blesses him and it pleases him. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And God, we want to do your will. We want to be a part of your great work. And so, Father, we're asking that as uh, we've heard your word this morning, that, God, that our, our, our heart would be, yes, Lord. God, heal us. May you see in our eyes a heart of faith that says, I don't want to be crippled anymore, not physically, but, but spiritually or emotionally or in our marriages or in our family life or in our conduct and some addictive behavior, whatever it is, Lord. We want to cast away the things that have ruined us and brought uh, uh, anything but blessing. And God, we want to be whole. Whatever, whatever that means, whatever the consequences are, Lord, we want to be whole. And we want to be about your business. And so I thank you for the, uh, this wonderful group of men and women that love you so deeply and are so committed to hearing your word and following you and doing your will. And I pray, God, that your, your wonderful blessing of power and strength and ministry and, and, and blessing them with, uh, uh, with the word of God in their own life, but also as they give it away, God, that people would be transformed and that you would use us this week to have many divine appointments as we simply follow the lead of your spirit. We stay in step with your spirit, being filled with your spirit, empowered by your spirit for the work of ministry that you have for us this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.